Adolf Hitler was definitely a cult leader. They weren't saying Heil Germany, they were saying Heil Hitler. The leader of North Korea, Kim, is a cult leader. If Scientology had said to Tom Cruise in the very beginning what they fully believe, I think he would have said, God, you guys have got to screw loose. Have you seen any overlap recently in affiliation with political parties and cult-like behavior? Well, This episode is sponsored by NordVPN. If you followed the show for a while, then you've probably heard me complain about how bad Canadian Netflix is. It was bad as a teenager. It was, it was annoying to go to America and see how good Netflix was. If you Americans don't know, it's bad. I mean, Netflix has been bad recently in America too, I suppose, but at least it has variety here. I used NordVPN to watch the best shows on Netflix and online anywhere in the world from Canada. Now that I live in Miami, I don't use NordVPN to watch good Netflix shows. But no matter where I go, I like to safeguard my online activity. NordVPN's state-of-the-art encryption protects you from third parties who want to watch what you're doing online. It also protects you from hackers, malware, and malicious people who might want to track your online activity. With their incredibly fast coverage, some VPNs are so slow. NordVPN's a simple way to guarantee your privacy and keep you safe online. Super easy to start using, and it protects you from anyone knowing what websites you've been visiting. And I think given the political atmosphere right now, it's worth doing just in case the government gets weird, who knows? Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com TMPP to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan plus four months for free. It's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can go there, see how fast it is, forget you're using a VPN, be protected. Sign up for NordVPN and enjoy this episode. Rick Ross, welcome to my podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here, Michaela. Yeah, this should be a fun conversation. Um, I decided to have you on because apparently you're a cult expert. So before we get started, can you give a brief background about what it is you do and who you are? Okay, I uh, started my work in 1982. I am the founder and executive director of the Cult Education Institute, which is a an educational nonprofit with a huge library online about destructive groups called cults and other controversial groups. Uh, you can find it at culteducation.com. I also do interventions to help people leave cults. Mm. And I've done over 500 across the United States and internationally. And I testify as a court expert witness in cases involving controversial groups such as uh, groups that have been called cults. I've been uh, qualified and testified in 11 states, including United States federal court. Wow, okay. So why did you decide to spend your life doing this, looking into cults and understanding them? I Well, it started, Michaela, as a personal thing. Uh, a weird group infiltrated a nursing home where my grandmother lived, and they were targeting the elderly. Ooh. And quite frankly, it kind of pissed me off. And so I wanted to protect my grandmother. I wanted to protect the other people there. And then I guess I became an anti-cult activist slash community organizer. And then I was on one committee after another committee. And then I worked for a social service agency and then started doing interventions privately uh, in the 80s. And so it grew out of a personal interest because it affected my family and I could see 
that it was a negative thing. And as I continued, I realized how dark and and very negative uh, the world of destructive cults uh, is and, and just how terrible it can be. For example, Keith Ranieri, the leader of this group called Nexium that I that I uh, exposed uh, very early on in uh, around 2001, 2002, Ranieri is now serving 120 years in prison for uh, for tax fraud, for sex trafficking, for racketeering. Wow. Uh, he is the man that it, that created this kind of sex cult where women were actually physically branded with his initials, with a cauterized. Oh my gosh. Yeah, there were many women that were tortured in this way. And so I helped Catherine Oxenberg, uh, an actress whose daughter, India Oxenberg, was in the group. And then I also helped many families and I helped many people to leave Nexium. Uh, Keith Ranieri sued me for 14 years because I published these uh, papers by two doctors, a psychiatrist and a clinical psychologist that were analyzing what was wrong with these training seminars that were under the umbrella of Nexium, that they were causing people to have meltdowns, be hospitalized, and the doctors explained why. And when I published those papers online at culteducation.com, uh, Keith Ranieri sued me, and that lawsuit went on for 14 years and was dismissed shortly before his arrest. I also wrote the book Cults Inside Out, which is the first book about cults, to include Keith Ranieri and Nexium. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, I have I have a bunch of questions. I think let's start at the beginning here. What's the difference between a cult and and a religion? Well, a religion does not have typically an absolute totalitarian leader that becomes the defining element and driving force of the group. And okay. that leader really becomes an object of worship. So what you have typically is a founder who has absolute power. There are no checks and balances. Whatever he says is right is right. Whatever he says is wrong is wrong. And then the leader uh, uses identifiable thought reform and influence techniques to coercively, you know, break people down, change the way they think, and then lock them in in a kind of group environment that the leader controls. And then finally, if it's going to be called a destructive cult, uh, you you would look to see how is the group hurting people. Because if the group is a, perhaps a benign cult and they don't hurt anyone, they have a leader, they have a mindset, but they're not really hurting anyone, then really it's not something that would draw my attention. So what I'm looking for is, are they hurting people? And that could that varies by degree from group to group. Uh, Nexium, Keith Ranieri would be a very extreme example of destructive behavior. But there are many groups that they just want your money they want free labor, uh, and then it can escalate to sexual exploitation and abuse, physical abuse, and criminality. Uh, for example, the cult Am Shinrikyo in Japan, where the leader Shoko Asahara in 1995 ordered his people to release poisoned sarin gas in the Tokyo subway system. Thousands of people were hospitalized. Many people died uh, because of what he did. And so he ended up being executed 
other members of the group were in prison. And this is an example of probably on a one to 10, one being, you know, a cranky, but least destructive cult, and then 10 being the worst, I think Asahara would be a 10. Wow. Okay. So you've kind of been in a battle for, when did you start doing this? 40 years ago. So I've been doing my work for 40 years. Sounds like a somewhat stressful way to live. Yeah. I've been under the protection of the Justice Department, uh, Homeland Security, and the FBI because of threats on my life. Keith Ranieri, who I mentioned, had me under surveillance, uh, penetrated my private banking records and phone records, and, you know, just harassed me for more than a decade. And there have been other groups uh, that also have sued me and harassed me and uh, stalked me and threatened my life over the years. When I testified against Ranieri in federal court, I was under the protection of the Homeland Security Department. So it, you know, it's it can be dangerous, it can be stressful, but I think, uh, I can't think of anything that I've done in my life that is not, is equally rewarding as seeing people who have been victimized by cults freed and seeing just horrible, I, I, I would say evil cult leaders yeah. put away. And, and Keith Ranieri is now in a lockdown, uh, kind of isolated protective custody place where sex criminals go. And he raped children. He raped a 12-year-old. He raped a 14-year-old. And so recently, another sex offender who didn't rape children uh, punched him out, beat him up, and he complained about it. But even in prison, there's a kind of code and somebody who rapes children, they're at the very bottom. And that's where Keith Ranieri is now. And I, I'm happy to say I helped to put yeah. in that. Have you seen an overlap in personality between all these cult leaders? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember one time talking to the psychologist and cult expert, Margaret Singer, who really was probably the leading cult expert of the 20th century. And I asked her, I had dealt with a cult leader by the name of David Koresh, who was the leader of a group called the Waco Davidians. And I had helped people leave the Davidians, helped a number of families. I was uh, working with the BATF and the FBI and doing analysis for CBS News. And someone said that they could deprogram uh, David Koresh. And I said, how can you deprogram him? He, he's not, uh, 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 he's not uh, programmed in the first place. He's a psychopath. Mm-hmm. And that person said to me, well, I don't think he's a psychopath. And so I asked Margaret Singer, what do you think? And she said, Rick, they're all psychopaths. And I think the, the, uh, the basic threshold requirements to be a cult leader is, number one, be at least a sociopath with no sense of right or wrong, no conscience. You don't care who you hurt. What a cult leader cares about is what's in it for me. What's good for me is good. And what's bad for me is bad. And they have no uh, innate kind of morals or ethics or anything like that. And then typically they're just uh, intensely narcissistic. I would describe them as malignant narcissists, very extreme. Uh, They have little, if any, empathy. They seem to only have sympathy for themselves. And uh, they're they're very uh, pathological in their pattern of lying. 
and misrepresenting themselves. So I've met a number of cult leaders over the years. You know, I've testified against them in court. I've met them face to face. And uh, for example, Keith Ranieri. And to me, they, they're all the same. They're almost all the same. And I feel like I'm meeting the same person with a different skin suit <laughs> over and over again. Mm -hmm. I mean, because Crazy. they just, they behave the same. So these aren't people that maybe start thinking that they want to change the world for the better. You think these are just bad people to begin with? Or do they have this grandiose idea that they're going to improve things and it just devolves into chaos? I think it's possible okay. for them to have good intentions, though it's been argued that that they usually are born pretty much bad. Some of them seem to be hardwired that way. Ranieri was harassing little girls when he was 10, and he was wow. recognized as a predator. Um, Charlie Manson, you know, the Manson family, the Tate LaBianca murders uh, in, the, in 1970, 1969, that family was active. And you know, Manson was definitely a psychopath, but you could argue that because of his very unhappy childhood and the fact that he was raised basically within juvenile facilities and prisons, that that he was he was influenced to be bad. But um, they're, in my opinion, they're very often innately bad. Uh, there was mm -hmm. a leader, Charles Diedrich who started an intentional community of, for drug rehabilitation called Synanon, which was very popular in California. And in, oh, Synanon would be going back to the 80s. And eventually Diedrich would be prosecuted for criminal offenses and the group would be taken down. But I think originally it seemed like there were good intentions. That is to get people off drugs, to get yeah. them to live a sober clean life uh but it just went off the rails because in my experience when you don't have checks and balances and transparency in the hierarchical structure of a group uh you know absolute power cor uh, corrupts i mean people become corrupted by not having anyone to answer to mm -hmm. and i think diedrich got worse and worse until he was arrested and I think that many cult leaders seem to have started out not so bad, and and the situation escalates. Uh, Jim Jones would be another example. Jim Jones was very popular uh, within uh, Democratic Party circles. He was very good friends with uh, uh, Governor Jerry Brown, uh, State Assemblyman Willie Brown. When Rosalind Carter visited San Francisco, she did a photo op with Jim Jones. He would later be responsible for the murder of a thousand people, including over 200 children in what was called the Jonestown murder suicide. Uh, he, but at one time, he was the head of a very big church in the Bay Area, and they had a branch in L.A., and there were thousands and thousands of people that thought he was, he was fantastic. He was a liberal mover and shaker who basically created... Uh, programs to feed the elderly, drug rehabilitation. Uh, the church was very multiracial, multicultural, and he was seen as kind of an icon of change in the 70s. But in 1978, he ended up with a thousand of his diehard followers 
in English-speaking Guyana. And after he murdered a United States congressman that came to investigate what was going on in that community, which was isolated in the jungle, where, where Jim Jones controlled everything, uh, he reckoned that the authorities were coming for him. They were. And so they mixed what, what was referred to as Kool-Aid with poison, cyanide, and uh, phenobarbital and, and sleeping you know, pills. And the end result was a thousand people dead and Jim Jones as well. And that's where we get the phrase, oh, you drank the Kool-Aid. That's an allusion to Jonestown, uh, though the Kool-Aid company wants us to know it really wasn't Kool-Aid. <laughs> Was, it was flavor aid. It wasn't their Kool-Aid. It was a different one. But uh, that was a big shocker for everybody in 78, I think. And people said, who are these cults? What are they doing? A thousand people are dead. 200 children, their bodies are being moved out of Guyana. What is this? How could they be there? Where did they come from? They're Americans. What, what are they doing in a compound in the middle of the jungle? And so that was the beginning of uh, cult awareness. And in my book, Cults Inside Out, I really get into that history and I show the uh, evolving of, of, you know, cults beginning in the 70s to today. Is this something that was like, were cults very, I guess, not popular, but were there, were there more cults in the 70s than there are now? Is this something that was more frequent back then or did people just find out about them then? Uh, Michaela, it's a growth industry. Okay. Uh, now okay. we have social media and we have PayPal and we have ways that people can be recruited online and then extracted money from them and so on. There are all kinds of cults that proliferate online. Uh, I'll give you just one example. Uh, there's a group called Carbon Nation. And this is led by an African-American by the name of Legio Bishop. He also went by, uh, what, what he, Nature Boy was at one time his nickname. And so he would recruit on Facebook, on Twitter, on social media. And then he rented an Airbnb online in uh, Costa Rica. And some people would give him money online. And then some people were pulled into the Airbnb and it became a little cult compound. The Costa Ricans kicked him out. The Panamanians later kicked him out. The Mexicans kicked him out. And he ended up back in Atlanta where he was from. And he's now in jail uh, facing charges of uh, sexual abuse and, and you know criminal exploitation of people in the group. But the group wasn't that big. There were maybe 30, 40 people in the community at the, at the most. Uh, and he could make money and pay for the Airbnb and everything online. And so you have groups that are streaming online, that um, there are certain leaders that may even have hundreds of thousands of followers online. Um, there's a woman by the name of Teal Swan, who's quite popular. She's been called a cult leader. Uh, she would say, I'm not. I'm just uh, holding forth online. And she has hundreds of thousands of people who follow her online. And these people become very wealthy. And then they extract some people from their online following to become their inner circle or community. Teal Swan has that. Uh, uh, Dr. Phil and I at one point exposed a woman by the name of Amy Carlson. 
and she headed a group called Love Has Won. And you may have read about her. She probably had no more than 30 or 40 followers, but at the time of her death, she had a half a million in cash, about a million in real estate paid for, and people were vying for who's going to control the assets of this group. And they couldn't accept Amy Carlson's death. They called her Mother God. So they took the body and they decorated it with glitter and lights. And they basically worshipped it until the authorities knocked down the door and, and arrested people for essentially violating a dead body. Wow. Okay, so I've got a few questions then. Um, what's the average type of person that ends up in a cult? Is there an overlap there? There is a kind of narrative thread that you could pull through a lot of people, but it could be anybody. They could okay. be any race, any socioeconomic level. They could be rich. They could be poor. They could be young. They could be old. They could be highly educated or uneducated. Uh, but what I've seen, if I were going to pull a consistent thread through many of the cases that I've dealt with, it would be somebody who's not happy at a particular point in their life. And they're feeling like, I'm just really unhappy with my life. I'm depressed. And at that point, they have the bad luck that someone they know could be a family member, friend, co-worker. They approach them and say, hey, you want to come to this meeting? You want to um, go play volleyball with these friends of mine? I mean, it could be very innocuous. It, it could seem very innocent because the group is not going to tell you what their agenda is or disclose mm-hmm. anything that might put you off. So a lot of it's about deceptive recruitment and just flat out lying. Uh, some of these groups have multiple names. You don't even know who you're being recruited by. You find out later, oh, it's that cult that I read about, but now they're using a new front organizational name that I didn't know about. So many of the people that I work with are just amazing people, really smart. Um, For example, not long ago, I was working with a young woman who had recently graduated with honors from Harvard University. Uh, I also work with a young man who was attending Penn the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia on full scholarship, graduated from his class as a valedictorian, went on to MIT and is now a a civil engineer. But at one point he was lured into a cult on the campus of Penn. A lot of these groups do recruit on college campuses because I'd say their main target group is 18 to 26. But five of the people that I have worked with our medical medical doctors. I I helped to deprogram and bring out of a cult an orthopedic surgeon, an anesthesiologist, a gastrointestinal specialist. These people were not dumb. They weren't illiterate. They were sophisticated, well-educated people. So I think if we think that we're not vulnerable, we're we're not really being honest with ourselves Anyone can be had given the right set of circumstances and timing. And and that's why I think it's so important to be aware that these groups exist so that you know what to look for and you can be prepared. And if the group approaches you, you can say, hey, you know what? You seem kind of weird. You seem like some kind of cult group. And you, you do your due diligence and you drill down and find out more and you realize, hey, this is a cult. Okay, so... I guess we could start with uh, how do people identify 
when it's a cult? What are the signs? Well, you go to the meeting and you see a big portrait of the leader on the wall. That's that's a real, real red flag. And everybody is talking over and over again about how great the leader is. And, and the leader says this and the leader says that. And you realize that the leader is what it's all about and that they worship the leader and that the leader is the core uh, defining element of the group. And then you realize that everyone uh, only views the leader through a positive lens. They're not critical. No one ever disagrees with the leader. And you also realize that there's no accountability in the organization. For example, um, a, a, a democratically elected board, uh, financial transparency through published budgets distributed mm. to all contributors, things like that. You know, you go to GuideStar, you know, uh, or or another website online, and you find out, boy, this is kind of shady. They're not really showing me where the money goes, and you you feel like there's no legitimate reason to leave. And that anybody who leaves is characterized in a negative light. Uh, and, and you also recognize that people are becoming isolated, socially isolated. And they're kind of cocooning in this group. And they're not really uh, in touch with maybe their family, uh, their old friends, things like that. And, um, and when you begin to see these warning signs over and over again you begin to put together a picture of a very authoritarian group. Everything is black and white, nothing in shades of gray, and people are just agreeing constantly with whatever is said. And you might be there thinking, God, you know, they just said something that's really weird. Why is everybody like nodding their head? What is this, a bunch of head bobbers or what? You know, I mean, is anybody thinking here? And so the group kind sure. of creates an environment where everything the leader says is reinforced and nothing is ever questioned. Okay, that sounds pretty stereotypical, but that, that, that sounds good. Uh, you, you spoke a bit about thought reform and influence techniques. Could you describe what kind of influence techniques cult leaders use? Um, I, I write about this in a chapter in my book called Cult Brainwashing. And probably the, the seminal book on influence techniques is the book Influence by the uh, professor uh, from ASU, Robert Cialdini. And I'll give you a few of them. One would be liking. Liking. We're more, we're more apt to go along with somebody that we like than somebody we don't like, which is the key to celebrity endorsements. I'm going to buy that car because uh, that athlete or that celebrity is pitching it. So that's why they have celebrities do that is because if you like that celebrity, it will influence you mm -hmm. to buy the product. So in a cult, you, you experience what's called like love bombing, which means you get into the group and this is another warning sign and everybody's just loving on you. They're all just going, oh. oh, wow, it's so great to meet you. You're, oh, wow. You know, uh, we were, you know, they're just saying a lot of effusive praising things. And it's because they want you to like them. And they want you to feel kind of reluctant to, to not embrace them because they are so nice. So the principle is liking. Another one would be social proof. 
which is a big one. So you look around you to see what other people are doing, and then you determine what you're going to do. When you're at the airport, going in the lines, going through uh, TSA or whatever, you're looking, are they taking off their shoes or what? You know, I mean, do I need to take off my shoes? So that is what we call social proof. So if a group can cocoon you in, in a, uh, a, what I would call a false social proof, where everything is really controlled, and you're getting this feedback that everything is normal, even though it's not, you feel that your doubts, your misgivings are misplaced. And so you kind of go, well, nobody else is acting like this is bad, so I'll act like it's okay as well. So social proof would be another one. And another one would be authority. So you are more likely to be compliant with someone who represents authority than someone who doesn't. So if a uniformed police officer approaches you and says, uh, let's, I want to talk to you about the situation here, you're going to be more attentive than it's some guy in cutoffs and a t-shirt. You know, so if the group projects authority, and they may do that by, for example, invoking God, invoking the Bible, mm. saying everything I say to you is in this book, the Bible, when in reality, they're, they're very likely twisting scriptures out of context for their own purposes. But, but if they can invoke the authority of the Bible, that's a big one in the U.S. and, and Western Europe. So you say, I, I'm not speaking for myself, but Jesus said, the Bible says, you know, Moses said. So then you're kind of thinking, well, I have to go along with this because of the authority of Scripture, because of who they are quoting and so on. And that can be manipulated in many different ways. So before I jumped on the podcast, I was doing a bit of reading and I looked up the most popular cults in America right now, and it looked like a huge percentage of them, like maybe 80% had something to do with like somebody's version of the Bible, which shocked me that a lot of them uh, were considered cults. So that was interesting. I didn't know that. Are cults more prevalent in America or is this something that really occurs worldwide? It occurs worldwide. Uh, my book was translated in, into Chinese and Italian. And I've lectured abroad as well as across the U.S. Uh, and, and really, uh, in the U.S., though, because of the First Amendment, separation of church and state, and because of the relative ease in which a group can say, look, we're a religious group, give us 501c3 nonprofit religious status, which, oh. which really gives them kind of almost a license to steal at times because they don't have to pay taxes they don't pay property taxes and the, and and religious organizations in our history in the US are given more protection than let's say another nonprofit like an educational nonprofit so the religious uh, uh cult or or some type of spiritually based cult will say, well, look, you know, we're religion. And if you criticize anything our leader does, if you criticize what we're doing, even if it's former members that are saying they were ripped off or they were hurt, they were exploited, that's persecution. So you better mm. be careful because we're protected by the First Amendment. 
So I think a lot of groups come from overseas, quite a few, and they set up shop or they set up a branch in the wow. U.S. because this is where they like to have their money. This is where they might make some investments uh, because of uh, the protection that our country affords uh, people through the First Amendment separation of church and state. Do you know what the cult that's around currently that has the most members is? Or in the past, the largest cult? I would say one of the largest groups that was called a cult would be a group called the International Church of Christ, which was founded by a guy by the name of Kip McKean. In fact, Kip is still out there doing his thing, but the group has fallen on kind of hard times. But at their peak, they went from 12 members in 1978 to about, I would say, about 250,000 by wow. 1998. And then a number of scandals occurred and Kip McKean kind of fell from grace. Uh, it was a Bible-based group and it was a break off from the independent churches of Christ. Though the first people to blow the whistle on Kip McKean was, in fact, the independent churches of Christ. They said, this guy is not good. He used to kind of be with us and he broke away and they were very critical of him. And um, he is still out there. I mean, he's like now, what is Kip? He must be in his 70s and he's still preaching. He's he's probably down to maybe he's just got maybe 5,000 or less actual followers at this point. And of course, people often think that Scientology, uh, which has been called a cult, is uh, really big. And the Scientologists will always say, oh, we have millions, we have millions. Probably based on what I know, they probably have less than 50,000 members globally. Oh. Uh, and that they've been kind of losing members over a period of time. Uh, the founder, L. Ron Hubbard, died in 1986, and his successor was his former secretary, a man by the name of David Miscavige, who's best buddies with Tom Cruise. Uh, in fact, he was Tom Cruise's best man when Tom Cruise married Katie Holmes. Uh, I don't Weird. I don't think he I don't think he was at the divorce settlement, though. <laughs> but any, anyway, David Miscavige is now the absolute leader of Scientology. And what I think is significant about Scientology is how much money they have uh, between their real estate and their and their cash. It's been estimated that Scientology is now worth more than $3 billion. And it's been said by some inner circle people that left that they have a billion just in cash. And wow. so if you go to Clearwater, Florida, they own a chunk of downtown. If you go to Hollywood in Los Angeles, you're going to see a lot of buildings controlled by Scientology. So their real estate portfolio is awesome. I mean, it's uh, very, very full of these properties that they don't pay taxes on, by and large, because hmm. they get religious nonprofit status. Is the government after these people like mad? No, you know, I think it's it boils down to you. you if they're doing weird things, if they're yeah. indoctrinating people and people are believing in science fiction stories or whatever, which is the case with Scientology, it's just an issue of criminality, you know. So so, for example, Danny Masterson, 
you know, from that 70s show. He's facing rape charges. And the allegations are that he took advantage of Scientologist women and that because they were all in Scientology, they were essentially kept from uh, speaking out. They were, you know, they, they were dealt with internally by Scientology and that Danny Masterson got away with things because he was, you know, a Scientology celebrity. And now Masterson is facing trial in in the coming months for what he did. Uh, so if a group doesn't do something criminal, if they don't actually break the law, then the authorities are not going to go after them. So it could be tax fraud. It could be money laundering. It could be uh, sex trafficking. It could be racketeering in some way. Or it could be something like, for example, co violation of copyright. Uh, there mm -hmm. was one leader, his name was Keith Ham, and he built a huge temple uh, in uh, Virginia. And it was like the Krishna temple, the Hare Krishnas. And Ham also liked to sell counterfeit Disney paraphernalia. And one of the things that he was busted on was counterfeit, counterfeiting goods. Uh, later, it was he also was involved in a murder conspiracy because there were people that were leaving the Hare Krishna movement that were very critical of this guy, and he wanted them taken out. And so wow. there were people that were killed. So if the cult doesn't do anything illegal, if all they do is believe in weird stuff, and uh, that you can't really, you know, you can't prosecute them for that. And sadly, if they break up marriages, they break up families, they isolate people, they compromise their education, their career, none of that is criminal. I mean, yeah. because the, the cult will just say, well, you know, this is what we, uh, we all shared this and this person made this choice on their own. But I would argue that they were under undue influence and that that's why they made choices that were not in their best interest. What does cult deprogramming look like? Oh, uh, it looks like a surprise to start off yeah because you don't like send somebody an invitation and say uh gee you know would you please attend uh, this uh deprogramming <laughs> because they're going to get, they're going to immediately text their their leader their associates in the group or they're going to email them or call them and they're going to say what should i do and they're going to tell them no way so mm -hmm. first of all it's like a drug or alcohol intervention it's a total surprise and so the person typically they they they're with their family for a visit, they're on vacation, uh, and the or the family may come to their home. It could be the adult children uh, having an intervention for their parents. It could be the parents more typically doing an intervention with regarding an adult child. Uh, so or it could be a spouse. So you start off, it's a surprise. The person who is the focus of the intervention is probably kind of pissed. And they're <laughs> saying, you know, why are you doing this? You, you know, you like blindsided me. So you have to kind of work through that and say, look, we're here because your family's very worried about you. They're concerned about you. And then you begin this discussion with the family or the loved ones present. And you're talking really about four things during the intervention. Number one, 
defining what is a destructive cult or a destructive authoritarian group. What are its core elements? Does it match up with the group you're involved in? Number two, what is coercive persuasion? What are these influence techniques that you think uh, have been used to gain undue influence over me? And then you discuss all of the particulars, the criteria of what constitutes coercive persuasion or thought reform. And then third, why is my family worried about me? And so the family is going to say, well, you know, you're not taking your insulin because you think the group can cure your diabetes. I've been involved in three interventions like that where people almost died uh, because they believed that the group had a cure for diabetes, which they did not. And they they were in and out of the hospital trying Ooh. the cure. So, so that would be uh, one concern of the family, their physical well-being, their health, or it could be their financial well-being, that they're giving everything to the group, or that they're uh, not, not paying attention to their children, that they're neglecting their family, uh, that they're becoming increasingly isolated, and so forth. So the family is now saying, this is why we're here. This is why we brought this guy, Rick, to come and sit with us and talk about this stuff. And then the next thing would be, what is it that the group is hiding from you? Is the group hiding anything from you? Do you know everything about this group? So then comes out the research. Did you know that the leader uh, was arrested for spousal abuse? Did you know the leader has a secret getaway that a million dollars was the price tag? Uh, did you know that the leader is basically enriching himself and his family from the money from the group, which is supposed to be a charitable nonprofit? You know, you, you want to bring out all that. And then the person ultimately is going to make their own choice. Uh, the intervention might take three days. So you're going to agree to meet again the next day, the next day. You might talk for five, six, eight hours a day with the family and uh, and the person that's involved. And then ultimately though, it's up to them. Do they wanna leave the group? Do they wanna take a break? Do they just wanna say, forget it, I'm going back. About seven uh, out of 10 people that I sit down with will decide to take a break or leave the group at the end. But about 30% will say, I'm leaving in the first day because I don't like what you're talking about. I don't like it. And that is their choice. So you basically go in there and try and untangle people from a narrative. Yeah. Like, well, does this narrative make more sense? And then they have to think about it if they're willing to. I, wow. think what you're, I think what you're doing is you are explaining to them how they got to where they're at, that they become basically a pawn for the group in most situations. Yeah. And they have subordinated their value judgments, their thinking to the leaders in the group. So to the extent that, that it's negatively impacting their life. So what you wanna do is rewind the entire recruitment process, the indoctrination process and say, how did you get from where you were, you were an independent functioning person to where you are now, where you're so dependent upon the group uh, and the leader to make decisions for you. I mean, uh, for example, what? give me an example of something that you disagree with the group about. 
I mean, typically people can say, oh, I don't like uh, this about my church, or I don't like this about the club that I'm in or the fraternity or sorority that I'm in. I think that person's a jerk. This is kind of ridiculous that they do, you know, and I'm not up for that. But cult members are more like locked in and they can't think of anything significant that they disagree with the group about. So you want to ask them, how did you get here? Let's look at the recruitment process that brought you through. Let's look at the indoctrination process that nailed you down. And were you tricked and kind of trapped in this group? Or do you think that the group was fully transparent and honest with you? So what you're really doing is rewinding that process so that they can uh, slow motion it and and freeze it at different points and examine it and then decide is this what i really signed up for i mean is it i in my experience most people that are in cults if they knew what they were getting involved in from the beginning Mm -hmm. they would not have gotten involved i mean if scientology had had said to tom cruise in the very beginning what they fully believed you know regarding uh their origins, you know, which is a science fiction story written by L. Ron Hubbard about a, a galactic overlord named Xenu who sent uh, uh, overpopulated beings to this planet, and then they they were killed, and their their uh, spirits are still residing in in our environment, and they attach themselves to you, and they would say, Michaela. You have body thetans on you, and the only technology that can get those BTs off is Scientology. If they had told that to Tom Cruise from day one, when Mimi Rogers, his girlfriend, then wife, kind of brought him into Scientology, I think he would have said, God, you guys have got to screw loose. I'm not not interested in that sci-fi stuff. But they came to him and they said, look, you've got dyslexia. We have study technology. We're a self-improvement organization. Uh, We're here to help you realize your potential. And they painted a different picture. Now he's pushing 60. He's three for three, three marriages, three divorces. And I would argue that every one of them was a direct result of Scientology. Uh, Mimi Rogers, her parents left. She was raised in Scientology, and she wanted to continue with them because Scientologists routinely disconnect or cut off uh, a family member who leaves Scientology. They're labeled what Scientology calls a suppressive person, an SP. And so Mimi Rogers, I think, though she's never really talked publicly about this in any depth, that she wanted to continue to be part of her family and her parents. And so she left Scientology and that made her an SP or at a bare minimum what Scientology would call potential trouble source, a PTS. So Tom Cruise divorces her. He marries Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman for a while, I think he really loved her and she really loved him. And she tried to kind of wean him off of Scientology and it it backfired and Scientology sent in one of their enforcers, a guy named Marty Rathbun, who basically broke up that marriage. And, uh, and, and it was about Scientology. And then Katie Holmes, 
I think really loved Tom Cruise and I think he really loved her. I believe him when he was jumping on the couch and yeah. saying at Oprah's show and saying, I love this woman. I think he really did. And they had a beautiful child that he hasn't seen for years, his daughter, Suri. Oh. And it, it, why? Because Katie Holmes, I would say, did not want to have her daughter raised in Scientology and she did not want to be in Scientology. So here's this guy that's gone through decades with Scientology, three divorces. He's a really smart guy. I mean, look at his career, amazing mm -hmm. career. So how do you figure it? I, I figure it that he was, in my opinion, tricked and trapped in Scientology and that he can't imagine a life outside of Scientology. Though now he doesn't talk about it very much yeah. because he doesn't want to um, put a negative, uh, you know, element in his rollout of his movie projects. And I think that's smart. But um, he's really been damaged, I think, in my opinion, by Scientology. Yeah, I, I'd say so. Uh, his credibility, for sure. Um, ha have you dealt with a lot of people who were trapped in cults? So when you did an intervention, they said, okay, you're right, but I can't leave because I don't know, they're blackmailing me or something like that. I dealt with a really sad situation once with a man who had left the mainstream Mormon church and he had become a member of a polygamist uh, cult, the one that we all have heard about, the FLDS, led by Warren Jeffs, who's now in prison for molesting and raping children. Uh, so this man became involved. He was uh, deeply involved. He had four wives uh, by the time I met him, but he was becoming very disillusioned, as many of the people in the FLDS have, have become, uh, and many have left. Uh, this uh, cult at one time controlled the towns of Hilldale, Utah, and Colorado City, Arizona. The police force, city government, schools, everything. It was like a cult town. And so this man became disillusioned, but he has all these children. He has four wives. I met with him. I talked with him because his sister, who was a mainstream Mormon, felt sorry for him. He was visiting with her and he was very sad. And she said, why don't you talk to this guy who knows about groups like this? And maybe you can see a way to resolve this. And I would love for you to leave and, and come back into the fold with our family, which you've been isolated from, from for years. And at the end, you could see that there was just no way because he had all these wives, all these kids. I don't know how many kids he had, probably 15, 20. And it's a family unit that he built over a period of decades. And he could not see walking away from that. And that that keeps a lot of cult members anchored. And, and I write about that in my book. It's, I would call it exit costs. What are the exit costs yeah, of yeah. leaving the group? Are you going to lose your job? Are you going to lose your family? Are, are you going to feel that after years of devotion that you have nowhere really to go with your life, that maybe you're too old 
you've been in a group for a really long time. I once worked with a man who joined Scientology when he was 22. And he left when he was almost 50. And the family did an intervention. He had been in Scientology for 27 years, from the age of 22 to 49. And I write about him in my book. And he had a terrible time coming out of Scientology. He did. And the way that I think he could do that was because his wife wasn't really that involved. She, she, and he loved her and they'd been married many years. He had two adult children going to college and they weren't really involved. So he had a family to be with that loved him. But all of his friends were Scientologists, every single one of them practically. And for him to leave that kind of subculture and start over again, it was tough. But he did. He managed to do it. But it that is one of the reasons that people stay. They just can't imagine a life mm -hmm. after decades of being in a group. And pe some people will leave a group called a cult very relatively soon, like in the first year to five years. But there are many people who stay for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. Uh, for example, Allison Mack. Uh, the actress that was in Smallville, you know, that uh, series about Superman growing up, you know, she had a great career. She was very well liked by many people in the entertainment industry. And she ended up with Keith Raniere and Nexium for, I guess, 20 years, pretty much. And, and, and by the time it was over, she had lost most of her money, her career, her reputation. And as we speak, she's in prison. She's going to be serving out a, a three and a half year prison term. And she sacrificed it all. And uh, very, very sad, very sad that, that that happened to her. But she was involved in this torturing of women. Uh, she was directly and physically involved. And so they had to send her to prison. Uh, but I think if she were talking to you right now, she'd probably say she has some serious regrets about how long she stayed in Nexium. Is Nexium the most brutal cult that you've studied? No, I think the Waco Davidians, that was a pretty brutal group. I mean, David Koresh raped children. Uh, some of them bore him children when they were children. Uh, uh. The one girl I met, he raped when she was 10. Uh, the group was heavily armed. Uh, they were militaristic. Uh, they were violent. Uh, I think that was a really bad group. I think that Amshin Rikio, uh, Shoko Asahara, who had members of his group that were physicists that were working on weapons of mass destruction. They were Ooh. testing the poison gas on the Tokyo subway system as a prelude. They were also hoping to... to build a nuclear device. I think Shoko Asahara and Am Shinrikyo were a terrible group. And uh, there have been oh, uh, various groups like Jim Jones, Jonestown, the 1,000 people that died there, definitely worse than Nexium. There was a group in Africa, Movement for the Restoration of the Ten Commandments, led by a man by the name of Joseph Kibwetere. And that group, Kibwetere, predicted the end of the world in the year 2000. And when it didn't happen and people were starting to want to leave, 
and rejoin their families. This was going on in Uganda. Kibbo Terry just started killing them. By the time he was done, there were 750 bodies recovered. That was a really bad group. And I don't know if you remember Heaven's Gate. That was a small group led by a man named Marshall Applewhite. 39 people were found dead, including Applewhite, in a mansion they leased between Los Angeles and San Diego in the general area of La Jolla. That was in 1995. And then there was also a group in Europe called the Solar Temple. And that group uh, ended in mass murder, suicide. About 80, 90 people died along with their leader, Luke Charest, who was from Canada. And they ended up in, in chalets in Switzerland and France where, where they died in deliberately set fires. So there have been just many, many groups like this. And, and I would want to point out also groups that do not believe in medical care. There are a number of groups in the United States, uh, for example, General Assembly Church of the Firstborn um, and uh, Christ followers, or excuse me, followers of Christ that do not believe in any kind of medical care. So members in those groups routinely die many of them children, and only recently have the courts begin to strike down religious uh, exemptions for parents who don't want to take their children to a doctor. So a number of them have been prosecuted, they've been uh, sentenced to prison, and children have been saved by court order, but many children have died. Uh, There was one group, Faith Assembly, led by Hobart Freeman in Indiana, where there just were so many children that died in that group because they, they, they could have been taken to a doctor and about 80% of them could have survived. I mean, only a small percentage were incurable. It could be something as simple as the use of antibiotics. So children died, they died in pain from these uh, faith healing groups is what they're often called. And of course, uh, there are quite a few of them in the United States. And then, of course, we have the polygamous communities and the abuse of children uh, in those communities. There are about 50,000 people in North America that are involved in polygamist groups. This is wild. I think the cults that I'd heard of, I'd heard of Jonestown, right? That's what that was called. I'd heard of that um, and Scientology, of course. What about the Moonies? Can you describe who they were and are they still around? They are still around. Uh, Reverend Moon started what back in the 50s, the 60s, and he created what was called the Unification Church. And he built it originally in South Korea. And then he started building branches in Japan, in North America. And they were known as the Moonies because they worshipped Reverend Moon as the Messiah. Reverend Moon would teach them that he alone Uh, would redeem the world and that basically Jesus had flunked and that he was going to fulfill what needed to be done. And they would recruit young people on college campuses and then they would persuade them to go to these retreats, these camps uh, that were scattered around the United States where they would be intensely indoctrinated and isolated for periods of weeks. Many people would call this being brainwashed. 
And then the Moonies would go on the streets. Uh, this happened in the 70s and the 80s. And they would just be uh, oftentimes deceptively uh, shilling for donations. They would give different, different names. They would not identify themselves correctly. And they even fake being disabled to get money. And so uh, Reverend Moon at one point had thousands of people in the United States hitting the streets daily, shilling for him. And the average Mooney would make about 200 bucks a day, and they'd mm -hmm. bring it back to Reverend Moon. On that basis, he built a financial empire that is now valued at over $1 billion. Uh, wow. Reverend Moon died at the age of, I think, 92 a few years back. His family now runs the group. At one point, they own one third of the American fishing fleet. And mm -hmm. they, they were accountable for, I think, uh, as much as 50% at one point of the wholesale sushi market. So in big cities like New York and Chicago, the Unification Church would pretty much control the sushi business. And Reverend Moon created uh, a real estate empire. The family still controls the New Yorker Hotel in Manhattan. And they bought land in South America, their mansions. I mean, it was a very successful group. And most recently, when you re read in the news about the prime minister of Japan, Abe, who they just buried him in a state funeral, he was the prime minister of Japan. He was assassinated by a young man, uh, 41 years old, who was unhappy with Abe because of his connection to Reverend Moon and the Unification Church. What? The young man's mother in Japan was bilked out of $750,000 and it decimated the family, bankrupted them. And the young man suffered, his family suffered. And he, in, he blamed Abe because Abe was... Uh, influenced by the Unification Church, he 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 would you know go along with things, help them in different ways. Uh, he would be a speaker at some of their activities, and so mm. uh, so the man made a gun and shot the former Prime Minister of Japan, who was recently buried, and it really caused all the Japanese to come forward that were hurt by the Unification Church, many of them. And they would say, yes, this happened to me. And different uh, cult experts in Japan would also come forward and say, yeah, this is really a problem. And the group is still very much alive and well in Japan. And they have uh, quite a following in the U.S. Wow. Okay. I didn't realize they were still around. What's your view on QAnon? Is that a cult? I think of it as a cult, but it's a very unusual cult. Um the the leader is anonymous so who is q is yeah, q an yeah. individual is q a collective we don't know i don't think q is actually a high-ranking person uh in the established um, you know intelligence community as as portrayed and then there are factions within the QAnon uh movement that are classic cults there's one woman she calls herself the queen of canada and she leads a faction of QAnon people and she's an object of worship and there was another man uh, with a group of followers not long ago in dallas texas who also is a charismatic leader of a faction 
and they were waiting for JFK to make himself, uh, JFK Jr., I think, to make himself known in Dallas. And of course, nothing happened. But in a sense, the QAnon group is classic because they they're very they're kind of cocooned online and they're very kind of socially isolated. And no matter how many times Q's predictions fail, they just hang in there. And that's what's called cognitive dissonance in destructive cults. That is, if you believe something like I believe what Q told me and then it doesn't happen and then the group spins it. They say, well, it didn't happen because of this, yeah. that, and the other. And then you being cocooned online and all of your social interactions are with other QAnon people to a large extent. Whatever the spin is, it's reinforced by the group. And so you then reconcile the conflict between what you have been told to believe and what actually occurs. And that's a very eerie kind of cult-like feature of QAnon is that uh, there's kind of an alternate reality going on with those folks. And no matter how many times there are these failed predictions, they just keep hanging in there. Do cults always take money? Like if you have a relative that you and they join something and you're like, eh, is that person in a cult? It's kind of getting culty vibes over there. Can you identify it by the cults asking for money or are there cults that ask for something else? Well, they they typically want something. I mean, because the, the leaders that I've dealt with are are not a very um, anti-materialistic kind of folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they want a nice car. They want this. They want that. And they feel they're entitled and they want all the members to help them. So it could be labor that the leader makes money off of. Uh, like I've okay. seen groups that have lawn services, maid services. And then the leader provides cheap housing, no health insurance, very little money. And the leader then bills it out by the hour for these services and makes a very substantial profit. So it could be free labor. It could be just cash. I've seen leaders that have uh, cheated people out of real estate. One intervention I did with a so-called psychic group led by this psychic woman, she was working with a doctor who by the time the children of the doctor brought me in, she had given 650000 that they knew of by, by bank records to the leader. So typically, yeah, they're out to get wow. something. They're out to enrich themselves. Uh, and of course, there's a cult-like aspect, I think, to multi-level marketing. So that's when you sign up for something like Amway or Herbalife yeah. or Lule Row. Yeah. Or, or whatever, and you probably are not going to make much money, and you're probably maybe likely going to lose money, and yet you have, you see this group of people that are like a community, and they're all, yeah, yeah, it's, we're, we're going to, yeah, the product, you know, and really, it's, it's kind of a process of indoctrination to believe in the dream that the group proposes will be your life. You know, you're going to be rich like this distributor. Oh, look at her. Mm -hmm. She's more money than God, you know. Yeah. We, just, we just bought her a pink Cadillac. So the group really is not so much selling a product as they're recruiting distributors who then buy the product and then also pay up in a multi-level scheme 
And there's a very small group of people at the top that actually make a lot of money. And so how do you get people to do that? I yeah, would propose yeah. that in my opinion, you gain undue influence over them by isolating them socially within your community. And you just hit them with this false social proof and all of this liking and authority and whatever. And the end result is they're, they're, they become deployable. They become your pawn and they lose money. And that's how the people at the top make money. And I, I think that many people in uh, multi-level marketing seem like they're, they've been had, they've been conned and that the real currency of the multi-level marketing scheme is how do I gain undue influence over these people so I can exploit them? So they have training seminars, community gatherings, all kinds of things. Uh, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're online, they're, they're getting together online and they're following each other on Facebook, on Twitter, on TikTok, and uh, they're streaming. I mean, this is what's going on with multi-level marketing right now. And so I think people get caught up in it and that the currency of multi-level marketing, in my opinion, is the, the technology of being able to break people down and change the way they think so that you can take advantage of them. I wonder if it also gives people a community, like lonely people, right? Isol people who are already isolated and they're, then they think, oh, there's this group and they're my friends. I'll, I'll help them out. And then even if there's a part of you that knows you're being taken advantage of, like, well, you have this group of people and they look like they care for you, right? I assume they get a lot of isolated people involved in those kind of schemes. It's sad. That would be a vulnerability. I mean, someone who really never fit in, who who is looking for a community acceptance, maybe they have family issues where they, they, they don't feel loved. And then these people love them, or so they think. What I often tell people is, ask yourself this. If you said, I don't want anything to do with this scheme, this group, this leader, would they still love you? And if they won't, is that, what what kind of love is that? I, I think that's highly conditional love. Is that what you really want? Because that's kind of fake. Is that what you want? And there are people that will say, you know, I am so lonely, so depressed. Yes, I I will take that. I remember one young woman telling me that, that I, I don't care about what, what you've told me. I agree with what you told me. The group is a cult. But it's the first time I've ever felt accepted, the first time I've ever felt loved. And, and I said, well, yeah, but that's highly conditional. It's predicated on your compliance with the group and obedience to the leader. And she said, I don't care. I want to be with them. They are my family. They are my community. And this was a very socially awkward young woman who had never really had a boyfriend, never really uh, had good friends and felt always odd person out. And this group, they loved on her big time. And she was willing to take that. So, but mm -hmm. usually people will say, no, if it's not genuine, if they really don't care about me, then I'm going to leave because I don't need that kind of fake stuff. I'd rather go out and find something real. Yeah. 
Have you seen any overlap recently in affiliation with political parties and cult-like behavior? Well, I'm going to tell you that I think that the word cult is being overly politicized. So you've got people on the on the left saying, oh, you know, Donald Trump is a cult leader. He is yeah. not a cult leader. He is a elected president of the United <laughs> States who won an election and he was president. And he then went through a process as president where he was accountable to the courts. He was accountable to the United States Congress, the Senate. Uh, they would confirm his appointments. This There were checks and balances. And Donald Trump did not brainwash anybody. The people that follow him, that believe in him, they were predisposed to, to be in agreement with him. And he knew that when he came out and he said, do you care about these issues? And he would tick them off, you know, uh, immigration, uh, you know, uh, China taking advantage of the United States and trade, or maybe you're not a fan of NATO and you feel like our NATO partners aren't paying enough or whatever. There was already an audience for that. There was already a group of people, very large group, about 70 million, that said, you know, we really like what this guy is saying. And he is, you know, he's charismatic. He's he's a, a very glib speaker and he won them over. On the flip side, I don't think you can say that uh, Black Lives Matters or Antifa are cults because I can identify that absolute authoritarian leader that is the defining element and driving mm. force of those groups that's an object of worship. So I think it's really important for people on the right and on the left to not uh, vilify and use the word cult as an invective to tear down somebody because it has very specific meaning. And when I testify as an expert in, in, in court, that's always tested and I have to withstand cross-examination. And so if I use the word destruct, the words destructive cult, I'm going to be very clear about why that group is defined in that way or destructive authoritarian group. And I, I don't think that we should politicize the word. And I think it is being thrown around in a way now that is not uh, helpful. And also, I would say it diminishes the genuine suffering of cult victims because there are people that have been brainwashed, that have been victimized and hurt very badly by destructive cults. And I think when we just glibly say, oh, you know, this guy's a cult leader, uh, the MAGA people are a cult, the, the uh, Bernie bros are a cult, uh, Bernie, Bernie Sanders is a cult leader. Not really, not like any cult leader I've dealt with. So I think we should just chill, chill it out there and just kind of dial it down and not get into that, not point fingers and call people a cult leader when they're not. That was a fantastic response. How often are cult leaders women versus men? Because you've mentioned a number of female cult leaders, and I'm surprised. I think mostly I've heard about male cult leaders. Well, it's mostly a, men, a, a man's job. <laughs> it's mostly men. But there have been some very, uh, very famous uh, cult leaders that were women. Uh, Elizabeth Clare Prophet who led the group Church Universal and Triumphant. She's now dead. But at one point, she bought a ranch in, um, uh, I think it's 
in uh, Wyoming, prim primarily, uh, in, and perhaps partially in Montana, from Malcolm Forbes, the, the owner of Forbes magazine. And this was a huge ranch. It was a huge compound. And she was a very formidable leader with thousands of followers and millions and millions of dollars in assets. And at one point, she was predicting the end of the world. I think she her prediction was around 1990. And so all these people started moving into the compound, and they actually had uh, underground bunkers for I think I wait, heard of this. Yeah, yeah, waiting for the end. And it didn't happen. Surprise. And so some of them left, and uh, Elizabeth Clare Prophet eventually died. Then there's a woman... A, uh, in uh, Spindale, North Carolina. Her name is Jane Whaley. And she has presided over a group called Word of Faith Fellowship for many years. And uh, she is has been called a cult leader. And um, then there, let me think. Well, we talked about Amy Carlson. Uh, then there was a, a woman by the name of Renee Julison. Uh, Renee's and her husband, but she was the real leader, ran a group called Victory Church in Grand Forks, North Dakota. And I did an Oprah Winfrey show uh, back in 1992, exposing the group and bringing out former members that actually had tape recordings of Renee Julison abusing them on the phone. And Ooh. they were played on Oprah. And that was the beginning of the of Victory Church, which had hundreds of members, including three medical doctors, two of whom I worked with personally to get them out of Victory Church. But at one point, it was one of the biggest churches in Grand Forks, North Dakota. And it was a big story because Oprah Winfrey ex exposed them. In fact, they threatened her with a lawsuit. They said, we're, we're going to sue you and, and you can't play those tapes. They're confidential. You can't play them. Yeah. And Oprah said, watch me. And she had her lawyers and she played them on the air. And boy, they were very bad for the leader, uh, Renee Julison. She ended up in Orlando, Florida, leading a Bible study in a condominium, condominium clubhouse. And then, then her, I think she split from her husband and now they they died in obscurity. But at one point, they ruled over a very large church in Grand Forks. Wow, that's wild. Okay. that That's very interesting. It's very interesting how there are people who kind of take off of Christianity, because you said after the cult kind of fell apart, she started leading a Bible study group in Florida. It, it's interesting how you get people who are reading the Bible, and then creating their own churches to take people's money. Well, to not not categorize everything as Christian-based, there is a group called Summa Ching Hai, and you can find them online, big group. And it's led by this woman who's originally from Vietnam. She now lives, I think, most of the time in California. And she leads a group of thousands. She would say much more. She has um, a television show. She has podcasts. She streams. And she's now 70. She's been doing this for years. And she owns the largest, largest chain of 
vegetarian restaurants, I think, in the world. There are hundreds of them. They're called Loving Hut. And she insists that she is supreme master, Summa Ching Hai, and that she leads a group that is based kind of on Buddhism and meditation, and they're intensely vegetarian, vegans. And uh, that's a group that really doesn't identify as Christian, led by a woman that that is pretty big. Hmm. There it is. Loving Hut is a chain of vegan restaurants. Wow, that's so weird. Okay, so if you if you start making friends with people and someone is calling them su some themselves supreme leader, that's a sign. That that would be a giveaway. Oh, my group is just like a regular group. We get to together, but the name of our leader is Supreme Master Summa yeah. Ching Hai. Though the members would say, "We have Supreme Master in us all." Oh. But, but, then, but then what I would say is, yeah, but your leader uses it as a title. So why does she use it as a title? And then I will ask members, uh, I recently was involved in an intervention. I'll say, can you think of anyone else that would be the equivalent of Summa Ching Hai as a supreme master? And it's like, no, I can't, you know, because no one is her equal on the planet. Yeah. You know, and so... People buy her jewelry, they buy uh, paintings of her, they typically might have a large painting of her that they paid a lot of money for hanging over their living room couch, you know, and that's a giveaway, you know, when people are that caught up in the leader that, you know, they're basically memorializing the leader as an icon in their living room. But uh, most groups are not that obvious. Then would you have put just out of curiosity, would you have put somebody like Stalin in the group of cult leader? Now, there was a, there was a lot of art. There's a lot of Stalin going around. I would say the leader of North Korea, Kim, is a cult leader. I would regard okay. that as a quasi-religious political cult uh, that was started by his grandfather and then his father and now him. I would mm -hmm. say that Adolf Hitler was definitely a cult leader. They weren't saying Heil Germany, they were saying Heil Hitler. And they talked about him as the father of the fatherland, the Fuhrer, you know, I was just watching a, a, a movie with Tom Cruise, Valkyrie, in which it, it, it follows the attempted assassination of Adolf Hitler by a man by the name of Stauffenberg. And the way that you see the people, uh, you know, worshiping, you know, photos of Hitler, portraits of Hitler, the fear, the palpable fear that they have of him as if he were supernatural. That's a cult. It's not just a political party. It's a cult. And I would say Stalin, yes, I would say so. I would say also that Lenin became a kind of charismatic cult leader. I mean, look, they've got his body embalmed and, and people go to Red Square to see his body. And to some extent, you know, Chairman Mao was also uh, an uh, could be called a political cult leader. Uh, they also have his body enshrined in Tenement Square. And then I think we could also, oh, we could we could look at um, Ayatollah Khomeini, who at one time was, I think, worshipped in Iran in a way that no other religious leader was his equivalent. I can remember when he died, 
they there were people literally throwing themselves against the coffin as they were going through the funeral service. So I think he became an object of worship. So I think at times a political leader can be a cult leader. But um, I think we must be very, very careful of, yeah. about how we use that because these leaders that I've just described were all dictators with absolute power. They had they they have no and had no accountability. And they were literally an object of worship. And I think if we don't see that kind of extreme expressed in a political group, we shouldn't label it a cult. I think that's fair. It's the same thing as throwing people into the Nazi category, just casual. Or or, or comparing everything to the Holocaust. I mean, the Holocaust yeah. was millions of people dying and t- over two million children, many of them infants that were murdered. So I think when we compare something to the Holocaust, we better choose our words carefully. <laughs> and when we call somebody a Nazi, which was behind the Holocaust and and the apparatus for genocide in Germany and Europe, we need to really think about that because that's a very harsh label. Can you let listeners know who are interested in learning more what they should read and where they should go online to find you if you have a presence online? Yes, they can follow me on Twitter, Rick Allen Ross, and they'll see breaking stories about cults in my Twitter feed. Same thing with Facebook. They can find the institutional Facebook page for the Cult Education Institute. Uh, There's a YouTube channel. Uh, They can find that through culteducation.com. There's a message board, a public message board, very big one, attached to the Cult Education Institute that they can also find through culteducation.com. And then if they really want to dig in and drill into uh, the subject of cults, uh, they can they can read my book Cults Inside Out, which is available in paperback. Uh, they can download it through Kindle on Amazon, or they can get the Audible version. And it's a very comprehensive book that not only has the history of modern cults, but really delves into what makes them tick, with over a thousand research footnotes and an eighteen-page bibliography. Awesome. Okay. Thank you very much for coming on and talking about all this. Thank you, Michaela.